So uh, I was asked to speak about various halachic issues that come up in the workplace. What are the topics that have been covered already? I just want to make sure. I mean, I, I assume it's been organized that I'm not covering topics that have been covered already. I was asked to speak about um, non-kosher restaurants, you know, business meetings, things like that. Um, microwaves and coffee machines at the office. Um, navigating questionable hechsherim and navigating tzedakah questions and yichud issues that come up. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's a solid 45 minutes of work we have ahead of us. So let's, uh, let's try to uh, give at least Rashi Prakin relating to this. Um, I, I always feel like whenever I talk about business halacha issues, um, I always feel like uh, reminding everyone that I'm the least qualified person to talk about this because I've never worked a day in my life. So I have no idea what actually happens in a real office. Um, so uh, ha- having said that, I do get shilas every now and then from people. So, uh, you know, maybe, uh, and, you know, a, a little bit of knowledge of the halacha may help you in terms of, uh, in terms of then applying it to the business setting. So let's first start with non-kosher restaurants. Now, why on earth would you ever go into a non-kosher restaurant? Right? It would be very easy to just say, just don't go to a non-kosher restaurant. You don't have a problem. But obviously, there are business meetings very often that happen in non-kosher restaurants. Sometimes, uh, you know, you're at the very entry level and you're an intern and they're taking all of the interns out to, uh, to a restaurant, uh, you know, during the summertime even, when, you're, when you first start your, your career, or as your career progresses and you need to meet people and you're not the only, you're not the only person there, but you are the only from person there. So, uh, so sometimes, sometimes you have to go to a non-kosher restaurant for that. Other times, people need to go to a non-kosher restaurant having nothing to do with business. They're driving on the turnpike and, uh, well, turnpike has its own separate bathrooms, but if you're driving somewhere and you need to use a bathroom and the only place that's uh, readily available to you is a... Uh, is a McDonald's or something? So, uh, so can you walk into the McDonald's to use the now? McDonald's is obviously very, very clearly trafe. It's uh, someone someone uh, uploads some of my Temin Alachashirim onto a podcast platform, and the guy who does it uh, gets has he has ads at the end. It's like one of these things that I guess he gets paid. Can't imagine he gets too much money uh, for uh, uploading Temin Alachas. But uh, but someone emailed me this. Someone texted me this week. This is too far already, you know. To that that I, that we hear an uh, an ad for Arizona State University at the end of the uh, you know or University of Phoenix at the end of your your uh, your your pod you know your temen halacha is one thing, but an ad for McDonald's at the end of the temen halacha that's a little bit much. So hopefully most people know that I'm not actually uh, promoting um, eating at, at at McDonald's, even though you know a McChicken sandwich sounds uh, delicious. But we're not uh, you know we're not it doesn't actually. But we're not we're not we're not, uh, we're not promoting such things, but th- that's the reason that a person might go into a restaurant for a business meeting or to even just something as simple as using the bathroom or getting a drink. Now, it's important to distinguish between three different types of non-kosher restaurants. Type one is McDonald's. It's so obvious and so clear that it is not kosher. Everybody knows that it is not kosher. Maybe it's a famous steakhouse in Manhattan that everybody knows that the place is not kosher. Type two is something that has no ashkacha, but it's vegan. It's uh, you know something that uh, people. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a yogurt shop or something like that that people don't necessarily know. Uh, or it's only fish and yeah. So people don't necessarily know that it's that what you're eating there is necessarily not kosher. And type three is something that has ashkacha, but it's a question. 
questionable hashkacha, like just about every restaurant in Manhattan. So uh, you have you have uh, I didn't say which hashkacha. So the, yeah, you have you have like that a lot. So it has hashkacha, but you uh, text your rebbeim in yeshiva, and they say to you, um, no, I wouldn't rely on that. That you know they give you the thumbs down emoji. Um, so uh, so they wouldn't rely on that uh, on that hashkacha. So the uh, so so what is the primary issue with going into a non kosher restaurant? So it seems to be some obviously the primary issue is eating non kosher, but we're assuming you're not doing that, right? You're not eating non kosher food. You're going there and you're going to have uh, you know a glass of water or a glass of soda. You're allowed to use the glasses because it's if it's owned by a non Jew, there's no requirement to tevilas kelim, and if you're only having cold, you don't have to worry about any blios. So you can use a glass and drink uh, soda and drink a, uh, a glass of water, um, club soda with uh, you know with something like that. That's perfectly perfectly fine. You're not going to have anything you know off of the menu. Sometimes you may even arrange that a kosher restaurant will deliver food on separate cutlery. There used to be, there maybe still is, that restaurants that offer this service so that you don't feel like a schlamazel, that you're the only one not eating anything or that you're eating off of plastic plates and using plastic utensils. So they just have like cheap cutlery that they send in the package that, uh, that goes to the restaurant. So you might actually end up uh, wanting to eat in the restaurant, but obviously you're not going to eat anything non-kosher. So what's the problem? So the problem is an issue of maris ha'ayin or chashad, meaning uh, those are two different things. One is that people will think that it is mutter. Uh, the, uh, what we call maris ha'ayin, the Gemara and Krisostav Chafalov says that even though dam dagim is mutter, fish blood is mutter, you can't eat it kishakinso bakli. If you uh, gather it together in a kli and eat it as a bowl of dam dagim, people will think you're eating dam behema. And Rashi writes, vaharoe omer mutter lechel dam. Someone will think that it's mutter to eat dam because they're going to see that you're eating dam. You're a very religious person. They remember you from the base medrash. So they're going to think that it's mutter to do this. The other iser is not that any anyone's going to think that it's mutter to do it, but that people are going to think, Oy vey, I remember that guy from the base of Medrash, now look what he's up to. Now he's eating treif, and now he's, uh, you know, he's gone off the derech. I knew he should have gone to a more yeshivish place, you know, like uh, whatever, they'll have uh, whatever, um, uh, you know, tainas that they have, because they're going to think that you're doing an iser. The Gemara in Masech Shabbos says, Kol makam afilu Anything that's awesome, you're not even allowed to do b'chadrei and Rashi writes, Shalom Yachshiduhu Biisr. Very different uh, tone. Not that people are going to think what you're doing is mutter, but that people will think what you're doing is asr, and they're going to be choshed you. They're going to be choshed you in, a, in an isr. And it's very important to realize, we are not the bailim on our own reputation. A person cannot say, I don't care what people think about me. What does it bother me that people think about that? You know, I'm, I know that I'm doing the right thing. No, we do have to care about our reputation. That's part of our requirement of Yisem Nikiyim, is that we're supposed to maintain a pristine reputation. Reputation. So a person, uh, that, that's its own iser. That's what Moshe elaborates on these two isurim in Igris Moshe Arachayim Chalik Bey's Simen Mem. Sefer Hasidim in Simen Mem Dal points out a potential third iser, that it's Lifnei Iver on Choshid B'Kshelem. That uh, not only is it, uh, is it that people might think that, that uh, this place is kosher, or might only th- is it, not only is it that people will think you're violating an iser, 
but you're going to cause people to be choshed b'kshirim, so it's lufnei ivar and being choshed b'kshirim. So that's a uh, third possibility. So is there any room to be mekil on these things? So there is a prichadash in Archaim Sim Tav Samachalv and in Yardeya Sim Pezayim, where the prichadash is mechadesh, uh, that Maris uh, Hayin is mutter, unless it's explicit in the Gemara that it's Asr. Meaning that we do not expand the category of Maris Hayin beyond the specific cases given in the Gemara. Hanging wet clothing to dry on Shabbos, things like that that are explicit in the Gemara. It is a great Chiddush. Rov Poskim disagree with the Prichadosh and say that that is not at all true. And uh, there's... uh, centuries of rabbinic literature that seem to take Maris Ayin seriously even in cases that are not explicit in the Gemara, but good to have that pre-chadash in your back pocket in case you, uh, you need it. The Ramah in your Deosim Pei Zayin, in Hilch, at the very beginning of Hilch's Pasuk Chalav, says that you're allowed to keep Chalav Shkedim, almond milk, together with chicken, together on the table, because Basar Of B'Chalav is only Midrabanan, and there's no Marasayin on Isurim Drabanan. Not everyone agrees with that Ramah, but also interesting to note that if what people are going to be choshed you is only in Isra Drabanan, maybe there's no Marasayin on a Drabanan. Not going to be so applicable to our case, because if you walk into a Treif Steakhouse, no one's going to think you're only violating Drabanans. Right? If they're going to think you're violating something, they're going to think you're violating Basar Bechalav, Nevela, uh, Behemoth Tamea, all of the, uh, you know, all of the real bona fide uh, Isurim. So, uh, it's, it's it, you know, when we try to apply these uh, these things to non-kosher restaurants, so again, Prichadish is hard to rely on because uh, it's against it's against Rov, Rov Poskim. Um, the, uh, the, the Ramah doesn't really apply at all in, in our case. There is a third, a third kula that maybe could apply. The, the rush in the ninth parak of Klayim discusses different types of silk that were asumishamarasayin, but nowadays he says, big day meshi mitsuyin beinenu, and everybody realizes that it's not samaropishtim, meaning there are certain types of garments that would have been in Isra of Marasayin at some point, but at a different point, once it became uh, used enough, once it became something that everybody was familiar with, so it stops being marasayin. Oh, so maybe that will help. Uh, that if everybody knows, people go for business meetings in certain restaurants, so then that which would have been Marasayin maybe stops being Marasayin. That would depend on the type of restaurant it is. If it's a restaurant with a questionable Ashkacha, ironically, it may be worse than going to a place that's really good and trafe. From a Marasayin perspective, you go walk into a place that's really good in Treif, everyone knows that that's just a business meeting. You go into a place that has a questionable Hashkacha, or a subpar, substandard Hashkacha, so then that's, uh, that would be more of a problem. It could depend on people's attitudes in certain communities. Um, obviously, impro- incorrectly and improperly, people think you could eat at any vegan restaurant, or you could eat at any, some people even think dairy, dairy restaurants, uh, or, uh, or any fish restaurant. So that, that, that's obviously terrible, but if people, uh, it, it would turn out that there's a greater Marasayan issue based on the perception that people have. At the end of the day, as far as going into a non-kosher restaurant, Ramosha Feinstein and Archaim Chilak Bey's Simon Mem imposes four conditions on going into a non-kosher restaurant uh, for, uh, for whatever reason. Condition number one, he says, there needs to be a real need. Um, there's a lot of tsar, you're extremely uh, hungry, and uh, that's the only place you can eat, even 
though obviously you're only going to eat kosher. Second is there has to be nowhere else that you can go, that you're not able to navigate where you can uh, tell your boss, oh, what about this restaurant? You know, maybe let's go to uh, La Marais instead of, uh, you know... Uh, um, Trafe Bistro, you know, whatever uh, the name of the restaurant might be. Third, Ramosha says, don't sit by the window. Uh, you're going to be sitting there with a big yarmulke on your head right by the window, so that, that uh, begs for chashad or maris ha'ayin. And fourth, he says, anybody that you know, that you see, tell them that you're going there for a business lunch um, and that you only have kosher food and not to worry about it. So, if you, you know, look around and see if someone uh, sees you walking in, make sure you text them, by the way, I know you see me walking into, uh, you know, Trafe Bistro, I'm just going for a business lunch, don't worry, I'm not eating anything. Now, those last two conditions really seem to undermine the entire premise of Maris Ha'ayin and Chashad uh, because we, it, they assume that you can control the situation. The whole idea of Maris Ha'ayin and Chashad is that you can't control the situation, you can't control the people are going to see and what people are going to know. Also, if the restaurant owner happens to be Jewish, as, as is the case in one of the most famous uh, non-kosher steakhouses in New York, um, that if the restaurant o- owner happens to be Jewish, you have an additional problem of being so it could be a worse problem um, because he's not allowed to be doing business with non-kosher, with non-kosher food. Um, but uh, that, that's what Rav Moshe writes. Rav Asher Weiss, however, has a more recent tshuva, where he offers two reasons to be mekel. He says, first of all, we always have the prichadash, that Marasayin doesn't apply to anything that it, uh, doesn't appear in the Gemara. So you could always use the prichadash as a sniff lahakel, as a consideration lakula. And then uh, he says, and everybody knows, nowadays you're only going in for business purposes. So again, a bad hashkacha is, is worse than no hashkacha in that sense, from a Marasayin uh, perspective. And uh, Rav Asher points out, Rav Moshe's tshuva was from the year Tavshin Yutes. What year are we in now? Tavshin Pedalit. So that was 65 years ago. So maybe 65 years ago, when a guy that you saw in shul on Shabbos morning is also walking into a trafe restaurant on Tuesday afternoon, people would think that, uh, you know, that maybe he's eating there. But nowadays, everyone knows that, it's, uh, that people go for business reasons. So Rav Weiss is makil to go in uh, on, on, under those circumstances. Now, what can you do there? What can you eat there? So, uh, you, you know, if, if, if it's possible that you could eat cut fresh fruit that is cut as long as you avoid any davar kharif, anything that is sharp, if you're assuming that the knives are clean. So many uh, Rabbanim assume that in an upscale restaurant, the knives are clean. Others say that they've had experience, that uh, they're not necessarily always so clean. But uh, So there are those that are makele to eat cut fruit. Best is, you know, obviously you can have a, you can have a, a glass of soda or something like that. Or, you know, have food delivered and, you know, as long as it's delivered in its packaging and they know how to handle it properly, uh, that would be, uh, that would, you know, could potentially be mutter. You need a, you know, you need to have a tviyasayin on it or, you know, really you need to, you need a seal on it. I mean, it has to be warmed up properly also with the covering and everything else. You also have to say a bracha if you're eating food, which could be challenging if you're sitting around the table with a bunch of people who do not say brachos. And it looks a little weird. And when you say a bracha, you need to wear a yarmulke. Uh, you can't say a yarmulke with you can't say a bracha without a yarmulke. So it could be that putting a hand on your head would suffice in these situations. Mishabur writes 
that um, even though Eina Guf Mechasa is Hatzma, and therefore we try not to use our hand as a yamaka, but Bishas Chak, the Mishaburu says, you can rely on your hand as a yamaka. Mishaburu gives the example, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't find your yamaka and you really need a drink. So he says, in that case, it's a Shas Chak enough that you could put your hand on your head and use that as a yamaka. Presumably, this might be a Shas Chak if it's really, really super uncomfortable for you to be wearing a yamaka in that situation. So that's as far as going into a uh, non-kosher restaurant. What about in the office itself? They have a microwave that, yeah? I don't think you have to do that. I think you could be making, you know, enough times. People are making about that in, in general anyway, about Mashmi Lazna, so you could, uh, you can mumble it the way. Yeah. You make a distinction between uh, a big place like New York City versus a small out of town community. Right, meaning it, it could be that if people don't are, are totally unfamiliar, um, meaning you're saying that out of town is worse. Out of town is worse. Yeah, meaning one could argue that in New York City there are so many Jews and they'll see you, out of town no one will ever see you, but uh, Pashtas is like Rabbi Bacon is suggesting that out of town is worse because not everybody knows that this is just something that people do for business purposes. I once heard that, in terms of what can you order, I once heard that raw salmon, there's like a, there's a hat there maybe, I mean, if you got to be very careful. There's so many issues that can come up. Because if you're in a tray restaurant where they cut not only salmon, they're also cutting and filleting all other types of fish. So the shamnunas on the knife is going to cut. You know, they're going to have a knife that might have shamnunas on it. They might have some uh, gook from some of the other fish, and they're going to cut the salmon also. They'll, they'll maybe swing it quickly under the faucet, and then uh, you know, and then cut the salmon with it. So that's a problem. Um, you know, uh, <coughs> there's the identification of the fish as salmon that there's makam to be mekil. Um, even though normally the halacha is you need to see the scales. On fish, in order to uh, in order to know that it's kosher, and you're not allowed to just rely on the fact that someone's telling you that. Don't worry, this is flounder or something like that. Uh, but with salmon, uh, there there are many of the uh, rabbanim are mekel. I think Rav Shechter's mekel on that because they did some research and they found that while they are able to turn other fish the similar color to salmon uh, by feeding it certain things or whatever, it's only worked with kosher fish. For whatever reason, they have not yet successfully been able to turn non-kosher fish flesh to be that nice pink salmon uh, color. So uh, that's why some are making to buy salmon at Costco, uh, even though you don't see the scales on the salmon. You also need to know that the way they package it in Costco is where they're not using knives and cutting tables that have other non-kosher fish. We're not getting into all of that right now, but you have to be very careful about that. Also, if you're getting cooked salmon, you would need to know that it's being double-wrapped and put in the oven and nothing else is being put on it. It's, it's asking for trouble. I heard from a Westman a few years ago in the Clavis Opera in that Ah, interesting. So if you get food that looks different, so everyone, even if someone would see you, they would know. It's hard to, uh, yeah. I mean, it, uh, very often restaurants have such a, a variety on their menu. So like, I don't know, unless like you get a bowl of cereal and milk or something. Like it's it's hard to know that you're. Well, you're assuming the knives are clean, or you're assuming that if it's caught, we don't have to. We have to inquire about if they use this knife for other foods, or we can assume that they clean the knives always. Or the so again, for. For something like salmon, I wouldn't assume anything uh, in terms of the cleanliness of the knife. Uh, for something that cut up fruit, where it's likely that those knives are just being used for fruit, there's more room to be makil if you're uncomfortable just having a soda and a whole apple. You know, uh, yeah. 
Um, okay. What? Yeah. Maybe, uh, but at business meetings, maybe it's not so accepted to wear a baseball hat. Depending where you are in Texas, you wear a cowboy hat. Um, you know, like uh, there are different social things. Meaning, uh, I get the, I get the every now and then. Someone asks if you're allowed to go hunting. Uh, I said, why would you want to go hunting? Well, um, there's a client in Texas, and that's what they do when you come to town. They take you hunting. So that's how you, uh, you know, that's the one in Rome, uh, you know, kind of thing that you do in Texas. So there's no debut about that. I'm not going to get into it now. Um, microwaves and coffee machines in the, uh, in the office. So a microwave is like an oven, but not like an oven, meaning a trefa oven. Uh, there are a variety of shitos about what to do about a trefa oven and when you can uh, when you can use it, how to kasher it, how you can use it. Uh, microwaves are in a sense better and in a sense worse than uh, conventional ovens. They are worse because they are smaller and it's a smaller area. There's more the the steam and the the, the heat uh, is trapped in a smaller area and can have more of an impact. Also, in a real oven, in a regular oven, when food spills, it very likely gets burnt up. If it's a tiny spill, it will get burnt up immediately. When it spills in a microwave, it just sits there. Uh, it's not going to get burnt up because the, the, um, the microwave itself is not, is not hot. Also, unlike conventional ovens, where the liquid is the last part of the food to become heated, uh, microwave ovens heat the liquid molecules within the food first, and that's what causes the rest of the food to become warm. So therefore, microwaves typically generate much more steam, and steam is really the issue in a microwave. Um, so without getting into all of the... Uh, oh, and microwaves, in a certain sense, are more cal than a regular oven because there's no, there's no heat. Whereas in a regular oven, the, the actual oven itself is hot. Microwaves, you know, the, nothing in there is hot. It just makes the food hot through magic or microwaves. Um, and the, uh, and the, the, the other thing is that um, uh, it could be that microwaving something doesn't fit the halachic criteria uh, known as bishel. That it could be that microwaving is not called bishel. Shabbat Sablovsky thought maybe, 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 maybe as a tiny sniff lahakel, you can assume that whatever is not bishel also does not affect blios, will not cause tam to transfer. It's a big chiddish because pashtus is they have nothing to do with each other. But, you know, the definition of bishel is is it bishel akum? Uh, is it bishel b'shabis? You know, those kinds of things. Is it a violation of the isser of bishel basar b'chalab? Whereas blios means, do, can I taste the treif in here? Will the uh, tam transfer? And, and pashtos is it has nothing to do with bishel, with, with the gather of bishel. But there are poskim that assume that they are connected with each other. And if microwaving is not called bishel, maybe as a sniff lahakal in a microwave, you can assume that. Rabbi Forst, in uh, his book, The Laws of Kashrus, uh, page 233, in at least the old printing, says that uh, there's no way whatsoever you can rely on that as even a snifla hakel, meaning it's, uh, they're two different uh, concepts. So how do you use a microwave? So first of all, um, the concern is uh, twofold. The concern is, first of all, that it may not be clean. There may be spills from previous usage of non-kosher food, and therefore, whatever you put in the microwave at the same time that there's still 
for all intents and purposes, other food in the microwave, because the spillage from the last time that someone used it is considered other non-kosher food, will cause the transference of the tam, of the non-kosher food, to your food. Uh, so that's one issue. And the other issue is that the, uh, the, the, the shell of the microwave itself, the inside surface of the microwave itself, if a non-kosher food was steaming and all that steam was going up to the ceiling of the microwave and then there's no vent, there's nowhere to escape, it just sits there. So when you put your food in and your food starts steaming, it will uh, hit the, the ceiling of the microwave and drip back down into your food or it could fill up with so much steam that the steam itself has uh, some of the time of the non-kosher the non-kosher food. Most posts can assume that the best way to handle a microwave is ideally make sure it's clean before you use it, and then once it is clean, cover everything. Um, if you cover everything, then, uh, there will, then, then whatever steam is there will mostly get trapped underneath the cover. It's not going to escape and cause a major... Uh, you know, and, 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 and hit the ceiling of the microwave. And even if it does, whatever little steam escapes is not going to be hot steam by the time it hits the ceiling of the microwave. And it's certainly not going to drip back down into your food. So if you cover everything, do you need a double cover? Probably not, but uh, might as well. You know, if you're, uh, if you're dealing with a tray for microwave, so you want to be extra cautious and extra careful, and it's probably a good idea to put an additional plate underneath whatever you're putting in the microwave in case there is anything on the floor of the microwave. So uh, in general, microwaves can be used. You know, people often ask me about using microwave in the office, and I say, uh, how many microwaves do you have at home? Um, and sometimes the answer is one. Well, so you're used to trafe microwaves already, right? Meaning if you have uh, one microwave for milk and inflation, so if you, if, uh, you have to know how to navigate that. I mean, there's no issue in having one microwave. You just have to know how to navigate that, that you've got to cover things. Because if you don't cover things, then you have, uh, you have to be concerned. Yeah. So they sell, um, you know, in an office space, you, you can't just use a cover if they happen to have, uh, you know, a cleanliness cover that they have there that all the trade people use also. So that's, that's not going to help you. Um, but what you could take just another paper plate and put it over your paper plate, and it will fit nicely over it, and that will be, be fine. Um, in a home environment, they sell these, uh, you know, these plastic, hard plastic covers. They're always vented, because if they're not vented, then it will just explode, right? it will just blow off the thing, and then, then it will not, uh, will not be effective at all. But I personally don't think those vents are usually a problem, because it, it allows uh, some steam to escape. Most of the steam still stays underneath. Uh, better if the vents are on the side rather than directly over the, uh, the top of the cover. What about a coffee machine in an office? So um, the problem with a coffee machine is that, uh, well, it, it, plain unflavored coffee is kosher. Right? You don't have to worry about the, the coffee itself if it's just plain unflavored, caffeinated coffee. The problem is that, let's say there's a Keurig uh, in the office, or very often much fancier machines. Um, over here on the sixth floor in the Rosh Hashiva lounge, or whatever they call it, the Rebbe lounge, I'm allowed in, so I guess it's just a Rebbe lounge. But the, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 they have a curate, right? So that's old school already. That's like from the Free Decoditis, you know? But if you go into, uh, into uh, you know, a real respectable office, they have like a machine that takes up like a whole wall. And, uh, you know, you could push a button and it will give you, uh, you know, it will start spinning gold for you. And you push another button and it will, you know, they, they, they have everything that comes out of that machine. So a lot of times uh, you have a real issue over there because you're only going to get a plain coffee. But the last thing to come out of that spout may have been, uh, you know, chazer juice. 
I don't think that's true, but uh, something that's uh, that's not uh, that's not coffee. That's not just plain coffee. So, you know, uh, you could take the plastic, you know, front off the machine and see if they're coming out of the same spouts and what the whole, you know, plumbing uh, of the machine is, and see if it's really a separate compartment. And uh, then you you'll know that you'll be uh, in better shape. But uh, if it's, unless you know that, uh, it's probably better to avoid using such things. A Keurig, if it's an old-fashioned Keurig, so the, the, uh, the OU um, had a Psaac. Normally, whenever you catch something, you want to wait 24 hours so that it becomes no Sintam of Gum. Um, however, the OU had a Psaac years ago that you could be makel to catch your Keurig without waiting 24 hours by wiping out the cup holder uh, all around, inside and underneath, with uh, some sort of damp uh, paper towel. And then you run hot water through the machine so that it hits all the surfaces. And, uh, and then you can, uh, you, can use, you, can, you can use that. Meaning they're relying on kashrin through irui. They're relying on a bunch of kulas. But they thought that uh, in an office setting where there's no way you could just like put a sign there, no one used for 24 hours, you know, so that I could kosherize uh, you know, and have my coffee, it's obviously not going to work. So they rely on those kulas. So yeah, so I used to think that, but then someone told me that they saw a coworker, you know, come with their own, <laughs> their own K cups because it's easy enough, you know. Um, I know up here, I keep sometimes, not, not, I haven't in a while, but I used to keep a pack of K cups in my in my <coughs> office in case they ran out. But they're pretty good about restocking, so I don't do it anymore. But you know, it could be that someone has a flavor that they like. That they like more, um, yeah. If the water just runs through the cake cup. Why are we concerned if the person not No, because it also runs through the machine. I mean, you ever look at the inside of the thing after? There's like little pieces of the because it punctures a hole in the cake cup, and some of the coffee immediately comes out. And if you look on the, on the inside of where the cake cup holder, you'll see that there's uh, little pieces of uh, of coffee there, and water obviously touches that also. Um, now. What about questionable hachsherim? How do you navigate that? So I think as a policy, it's always better to ask them, don't order anything for me. Let me handle my order or just don't order anything. Because the most well-meaning people will try their hardest and they'll go out of their way you know, to make sure that everything is just right for you. But they're clueless and it will not be just right. And then they'll feel so guilty. Um, that they'll feel uh, so insulted, rather, and you'll feel so guilty that you're not allowed to eat it. Uh, my friend Gavri Butler told me that when his father, Judge Butler, some of you may know from Pittsburgh, uh, was in Duquesne Law School. So he was on Law Review, and they had, Duquesne is a Jesuit university, so uh, they had a, uh, a special Law Review dinner around Christmas time um, at a restaurant and they wanted to take care of, uh, of Judge Butler and make sure that he, was, that he was okay. So they did all the research they could do. This is pre-internet days. So they went to the library and took out books about kosher and whatever. So uh, they, they got Hebrew national salami and uh, whatever they, 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 they got whatever they, they can. They, they got paper plates and plastic forks and uh, whatever. But like, there was nothing there that, uh, that he was able to eat and it was a sarbate based. So uh, <laughs> so uh, he, he, he didn't know what to do. And then, t- thank God, um, the, the dean of the law school came and the dean apparently at one point worked 
for Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky. And the dean looked and he saw this paper and he's like, what? He's a Hebrew national. He's like, what is going on over here? They said, oh, we made everything kosher for, uh, for, for Dan. Uh, and uh, the dean said, Butler... I know what kosher is. If you're any kind of Jew, you won't touch this stuff. <laughs> so they, he knew he was, uh, he was off the hook at that, uh, at that point. But it's a better idea to order your own food. It's also a good idea um, to keep the CRC list of acceptable hashkafas saved on your phone, just in case you don't have good Wi-Fi, um, and also to have a rabbi who responds quickly to these questions that you can, uh, that you can ask. Um, you know, I'll tell you what happens. The secret behind the scenes thing is that uh, there's a rabbinic WhatsApp chat with a kashrus professional that many of the rabbis are very friendly with. And uh, when your rabbi gets a picture of Ashkacha from Trader Joe's, because it's always from Trader Joe's, uh, he forwards that to this rabbinic WhatsApp chat, and then instantaneously <laughs> our kashrus professional friend gives us the yes or no. And then uh, so you're like, wow, my rabbi's so quick. It's not your rabbi, it's so quick. It's our rabbi that's so quick who's uh, responding to everything. So, um, but, uh, but, okay, that's the behind the scenes. But it's good to know what is uh, an acceptable hashkacha, what's not, or to have access to that information. And even if it is a good hashkacha, you have to worry about problems with packaging and delivery and making sure that it's, everything remains packaged uh, properly. So it's not easy to navigate. The best way to navigate it is by, not, is by specifically asking, please don't order any food for me. Um, if, uh, you know, I'll bring my own or I'll order my own. It's difficult. You have to, yeah, it's difficult. Meaning, and you should realize any kula you're taking is going to reflect poorly on, uh, you know, on the Ben Torah. That's you know, oh, it's no problem. I could leave late on uh, Friday. You know, like <laughs> the, the guy that needs to. You have to be mindful of that also. Yeah, it's not easy. Uh, if don't order anything for me, is, is not super practical uh, in a specific scenario. What's like, that? If, if, don't, if they don't order anything for Mahalik, is not super practical in a specific scenario. What's the next? then give them as specific uh, instructions as you possibly can. Um, because they want to do right by you. They don't want to, you know. Um, now, tzedakah questions. I will try to, whatever we can. Um, first of all, once you make money, um, you have the ability to give tzedakah on your own terms, meaning uh, hopefully you've all given tzedakah in the past, but pretty much it's, you know, uh, your parents' money or uh, your parents are supporting you that allows you to give tzedakah from your... Uh, whatever, from the little bit that you make in the summertime or whatever, you know, whatever internship you had. Once you're really uh, self-sufficient, so there's a minig called Maishu Ksafim, it's Machlokas Rishonim, whether it's a Dindar Rais, a Dindar Abanan, or a Minag. We paskin that it's a Minag, but people sometimes say, ah, it's only a Minag, and they poo-poo it. No, it's a Minag quoted in Shulchan Aruch. You know, so it's a very serious Minag that a person should try to fulfill. Um... Uh, and, and one should realize that Meiser, if one can afford it, obviously if you can't afford it at all, and you manage to know what to eat because you're trying to give Meiser, so then Bechia uh, Gavna, the Minag, is not, does not apply. But if one can afford it, one should realize that Meiser is the minimum 
it's not the maximum. The maximum, according to the Gemara, is Hamvazvi Zali Vazvi Yoser Mechomesh. Rav Shachter often points out that he gives about 50% of his money to Tzedakah. So we asked him, oh, but that's a violation of the halacha. Maybe you haven't gotten to Ksubis yet, where uh, the Gemara says that you're not allowed to give more than a Chomesh. He says, no, because the Post can point out that if you're an Ashir Muflag, if you're exceptionally wealthy and therefore not at risk of becoming poor by giving too much money, so then you're allowed to give more than a Chomesh. So uh, he says, you know, because why you obviously pays him millions of dollars. So he's, a, he's in Ashir Muflag. He doesn't just have an apartment in Washington Heights, he has a duplex apartment in Washington Heights. So that's probably what you think of when you think of an Ashir Muflag, right? So, uh, so uh, anyway, uh, but Meiser is a minimum. Rabbi Saul Reisman tells the story that when his, in like the 1980s, I think it was like 1986 or something, his father was diagnosed with cancer. And he went straight from the doctor's office to Yeshiva Torah Das to pick up Rabbi Reisman, to, to call him out of the base medrash, to tell him. So Rabbi Reisman comes out of the base medrash, and his father you know, brings him to his car, and he says, I just want to tell you that I was just diagnosed with cancer, and the reason I came to you first is because I feel that I need to ask Mechila, I feel that, he said, no, is that, that I feel that it's, it's my fault a little bit that Akhosh Baruch is doing this to me. So Rabbi Reisman said, what do you mean? He said, I, I feel that it's about tzedakah. Um, so Rabbi Reisman said, but aren't you makbid on giving, you know, chomesh? What do you mean? You've always given so much tzedakah. It's Reisman's bakery, the brownie bars, right? That was his father. So he said, I, I, you know, you give, you, aren't you always makbid on chomesh? He said, oh no, you misunderstand. I give way more than chomesh, but that's your Yerusha. So I came to ask Mechila that I've been giving away your Yerusha all these years. And uh, so he was Mochelon. So then uh, he had a Rufua and he lived for another 15 years after that, I think. So uh, then when he died, right before he died, he told Rabbi Reisman that he has a, like $180,000 life insurance policy. He would like him to take that policy and just give it to an Ani. And he told him which Ani to give it to. It's an interesting, Shaila, do you have to listen to that? Right? Meaning, of course he did, but I'm saying, like, uh, is it his money to give away? Okay, whatever, it's an interesting. Uh, Shaila for a different time. Um, Chomesh is 20 25%. Chomesh is 20%, right? So that's uh, meaning we say, right, Chomesh Milavar would be 25%, but uh, yeah, over here it's 20% of. Um, meaning it's double Miser. That's how we get to Chomesh. Um, so um, the, it's a good idea once you start giving tzedakah to keep a separate tzedakah account. It's much, much easier to give when you don't feel like you're giving up of your own stuff. So if you have a, a, you know, a certain money that goes into an account, whatever it is, 10% of your, of your salary is set up to be di- directly delivered into a, an account that you call tzedakah. So then when you give it, it's much easier to give because it's already tzedakah. Um, it's so important to realize that being a big bal tzedakah doesn't mean you give a lot of money to tzedakah. It means you give a high percentage of money to tzedakah. I mean, they say that someone was once in, in, introduced a big gvir from America to Rav Steinman, and they said to Rav Steinman, he's a big bal tzedakah. So Rav Steinman said, yeah, what percentage do you give? And like, he wasn't expecting that question because, you know, the guy's worth $500 million, so he's like, he gives a million dollars a year to tzedakah, and it's like... <laughs> That's no, that's nowhere near what you uh, what you should be giving. He's someone that everyone uh, is super nice to because he's a rich guy. But that doesn't mean that he's a big belt tzedakah. It means to give a good percentage of the money to uh, to tzedakah. Now it's important to realize that uh, it's a responsibility to, to have tzedakah. You can't just give to you know to wherever 
um, whoever is in front of your face, you know, with an email uh, uh, crowdfunding campaign for whatever. Okay, he's a friend of mine, and it's an email, so I might as well give all my money there. No, you have a responsibility. If Akash Baruch gives gives you money, so he's investing with you, and he's trusting you to be a responsible, um, you know, money manager. And that's where Shemesh Kap writes uh, that in the famous introduction to Shari Yosher, that, uh, that, that, that that the idea that Aser Bishvil Shetesasher, that Dafka, no matter what else you do in life, giving tzedakah is a skula for, for making more money. It's, it's, it's not a magical skula. It's not a Kodesh Baruch trusting you as a money manager. So if you use the money the way he wants you to use it, he'll invest more with you. If you use the money not the way he wants you to use it, even though you're the nicest guy and you daven so beautifully and you do everything else, but you're not going to be his money manager. Just like if you hired someone to be your money manager and he's a super sweet guy, but he loses all your money, you would not continue to invest with him. Right? So it is a responsibility. Um, Rav Shachter often points out the concept of Ani Ircha Kodman is not about geographical location so, uh, so much as it's about that which is closest to your heart. So there's a greater chiyuv uh, to give, let's say, to uh, you know, an institution that you've benefited from. Let's say a couple has had fertility issues. So when they, and, and they benefited from a time or from uh, Pua or from one of these organizations. So that should be a priority. Ah, but Machon Pua is all the way in Israel. They just have a couple of American representatives. No, but if you benefited from them, so then that's that's considered something that's closer to you. The yeshiva you learned and the yeshiva your kids learned, and even if uh, there may be another yeshiva that's closer to your house. So that's uh, something to keep in mind. All of the priorities that we have in Sadaqah, Rav Feldman points out in his, uh, in his Sefer, in one of his, uh, in The Right and the Good, I think it is, which is his first, uh, Feldman's first book, um, that uh, it's guided by the halacha, but it's somewhat discretionary. Meaning, it's not like ironclad that you must give this amount to Aniyah Ircha and this amount to Aniyah Eretz and, and some of it will depend on situations. Obviously, a lot more money has been going to Eretz in the past few months, and that's proper. That's proper, considering the, uh, the, the gravity of the situation, the greatness of the need, and uh, what's happening in Kal Yisrael uh, right now. So it, it's a much bigger uh, schmooze than we're able to have right now. I did, I did um, tell Rabbi Kron that I would try to get to five minutes worth of tricky Yichud situations, so let me try to do that to, to close. Um, now, uh, I've been told that in most office places now, the new trend is that um, every office is glass walls throughout, uh, which makes yichud much, much better. That's uh, it's very helpful. It makes taking a nap in your office much, much harder, but, uh, but it, makes, it makes yichud uh, much, much better to have, uh, to have glass walls. Um, the halacha supply to any woman, no matter how attractive or unattractive she may be. But having said that, you know, uh, there may be certain kulas, you know, yichud, I, I would point out to guys who are dating, that yichud is the bare minimum, much like my Yichud is the bare minimum. It's not the maximum in terms of uh, how careful you're supposed to be. So uh, you might take advantage of certain kulas when there's like no chance. You know, she's 95 years old. You know, like there's no hirhurim uh, and there's no nothing. So, but Elamai, there's a technical this or yichud. So then you could technically go with whatever heterim there might be. 
when there's a relationship, it's someone you work closely with, close in age to you, an attractive person, things like that, one needs to be extremely, extremely careful. Workplace relationships can be very, very dangerous. The most uh, notable heterim that appear in the Gemara are Baila Be'ir and Pesach Pesuach, the Rosh both very hard things to achieve in an office late at night. Um, you know, especially if uh, the woman is not married or uh, her husband would never ever come to the office because he never has come to the office. And Pesach is also hard. However, uh, due to modern technology, there is a possibility of creating a Pesach situation. And that is, according to some postcom at least, if you set up a camera on your desk that your wife is checking in on, or that somebody doesn't have to be right, that somebody is checking in on, and you know that they're checking in on, and you're in front of that camera, and it's a live feed, uh, that would be permissible. Rabbi Skatulis, who was just here in Yeshiva yesterday, the author of Oel Yaakov, writes in the Sefer on Hilchus Yichud that you have to have five conditions for a camera to work. There, there can't be blind spots, they're constantly working, it's a high quality image, people have consistent access to the camera and people in the room are aware of the cameras. Obviously, if you're not aware that there is a camera, then uh, you know, people get caught doing a lot of crazy things because they're unaware that there is a camera. Had they been aware, maybe they would not have done those, uh, those crazy things. Someone from Guy actually told me that he caught um, two from employees of his, a man and a woman, having an affair uh, because they, he saw something strange about when, they were, when their IDs were clocking into the office and he checked on the cameras. And, uh, you know, so... Uh, there's always cameras. Rule in life. <laughs> there's, there's always, uh, the, and at least there's a big camera up in Shemayim. Um, so it could be that if, you st- if you're mamish in front of a camera and you know that somebody else is, uh, is watching you, that that can save from the problem. Uh, you know, like many, many other things in life, it's, if you think things through in advance and you're not caught off guard, you could usually navigate around it. Especially nowadays where um, working from home uh, at least for late at night kind of things is not at all uncommon. Meaning even people who are, you know, they're, they're accountants, they're working at a big uh, accounting, a PwC or uh, KPMG or whatever. So the, the, it's not uncommon for people to, Deloitte, uh, you're jacking, but the, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not uncommon for people to work until dinner time and then at, uh, at dinner time go home and then work from home from dinner time till one in the morning or whatever. So, you know, and that's where the yichud would normally come up in the office. So uh, it's probably a good idea to try to navigate around it if possible. And, you know, thank God the, uh, the culture has, uh, has allowed that for most of the time you, you're actually able to navigate around it. Okay, yeah, Jake. So I think uh, I think Chavz Chaim writes that uh, that by year you should make sure that uh, that you've taken care of, that you've done an accounting you've taken care of everything. I think in Avos Chaim said that. You should figure out how much money you're going to need in the following year based on the previous year. No, as it comes in. Meaning, some people may know exactly what they're going to make, right? Because they uh, they're salaried employees. They know they got a four uh, percent raise and they have you know this amount of bonus. And they know exactly what's going to come in. Other people are in types of industries where it could vary from month to month, you know, greatly. Um, so it depends what comes in. And that's, that's how you cheshman the mesa. So I think most of the posts can assume that whatever money you never see, uh, you don't take mesa from. It's interesting, meaning like it's withholding taxes that you don't take, but, but uh, any money that you've seen and then used, 
um, you know, to pay for whatever, uh, is still included in the uh, in the cheshbon. There's an interesting question about gifts. Um, if someone gives you a gift, do you have to take meiser from the gift? So I always thought that the pashtus is that if someone gives you a cash gift, yes, but if they give you a, uh, you know, uh, a, a gift, an item, that you don't have to assess its value and take uh, take meiser from that. There are poskim that are machmir about that even, like when it comes to wedding gifts and things like that. But I think the more standard approach is that a cash gift, yes, and, uh, you know, if someone buys you silverware or something that you don't have to... I think Rabbi Reisman quoted from Rapam that Rapam said, maybe it was Rapam, maybe it was a stipler, I don't remember who he quoted from, that on gifts, even things, you would have to take meiser from, but only you could assess its value, not at its real value, but at the value of what you would have spent. I mean, so someone buys you fancy silver. I would never buy fancy silver. I would buy uh, whatever flatware is available, you know, at amazing savings, you know? Like, uh, so it costs like $100 for a spoon. I would have paid a dollar for a spoon. So you can give meiser based on uh, what you would have spent on, on that. If someone gives you equity, so I think when you cash it out, but until then, I think you're, you know. There's something that, like, like, is there a way, like, to, like, navigate, like, the, your, your miser account, like, your money, your stuff account, like, how often to get from it or to let it, like, accumulate? So again, you want to make sure that, uh, you know, I was once asked to Shaila, someone had sold his business for $585 million. And, um, and it was a tax-friendly deal, so even after taxes, it was $500 million. Um, I don't know how that works exactly, but rich, rich people don't have to pay taxes. That's the bottom line. So, uh, so, so he had $500 million that he made in a day. So he and all of his children retired <laughs> immediately, um, but they had $50 million of MISA money to give. So they wanted to know, do I have to give it now? Right? Do I have to give it this year? Because each year, so fifty million dollars is a lot of a lot of money to get rid of in a single year. Um, so, uh, so I thought it would be irresponsible to get rid of it in a single year because there's no way you're going to distribute that responsibly if you if you try to you know get it done before Rosh Hashanah. They asked Rav David Cohen. I think Rav David Cohen told them that he should that they should give it uh, that year. I thought put it in, make a foundation, put it in the foundation, so it's now been distributed to the foundation. And then over the years, the foundation will figure out how to uh, how to distribute it uh, properly. Um, yeah, but it should be something that's given on an ongoing basis. I don't want to be overtime. You guys yeah. look hungry. Okay, have a great day, everyone. I really appreciate it.